you turn with me to Psalm chapter 51. It's a psalm of David, perhaps the greatest king that ever lived in the nation of Israel. And it's a psalm of lament, sadness, and a psalm of seeking for forgiveness. Allow me to read Psalm 51. If you want to understand the background of today's message, I have the words uh, to, to 2 Samuel chapter 11, or portions of it, also on the right-hand side, printed in your bulletins. Um, but that's for your background. We're going to focus on Psalm 51 uh, uh, today. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And this is God's word. About a month ago, we started a new series and the series centers around the vision of Metro Presbyterian Church. What is Metro Presbyterian Church? What values are we founded upon? And the first value, the central value to which all of the values that point that we are going to live out in this church is that we are a gospel-centered community. And ultimately, what, uh, it's, a, it's one of my favorite series probably uh, because I get to preach on passages that have impacted and influenced me greatly with respect to the gospel, maturing in faith, and I get to share that and impart that with my community here. This passage is perhaps one of, the, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, definitely in the Psalms. And it's from King David, God's chosen leader over his people, and it was probably one of the single most influential figures in ancient biblical history, if not the most uh, influential figure. In fact, Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is probably the largest, longest biographical account of one single person in the in entire Old Testament and ancient history combined. Who's King David? 
You know King David, if you've been in the church at all, he slayed the evil Goliath. He wrote many of the Psalms. He had many devoted friends. He had many soldiers who were committed to him. The Bible says that David, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, David was a man after God's own heart. This is God himself describing David. He was a warrior. He was a poet. He was a faithful friend. And he was a faithful, faithful king. He was chosen by God. Yet what do you see here? In this passage, his life completely explodes. David, this chosen man of God to lead his people, his life completely explodes, blows up in this passage. And what does that tell you? The Bible is not a manual on how to live a good life, which is what the rest of the world out there likes to see the Bible as. But why do we study David then? I mean, look at David. He is clearly not an example here of what it means to live a good life. It's not a manual. Here's why. This passage teaches us that if a life like David can explode, David, God's chosen king, if a life like his can fall into the gutter, then any one of our lives can fall into the gutter. And at the same time, if a life like David can be restored and renewed, that means any one of our lives, no matter where we've been, even now, can be restored and renewed. There are three things we're going to learn from this text. Nathan's prophecy, David's repentance, that's this passage, and ultimately, God's forgiveness. Repentance. A lot of us are allergic to the word repentance, but this passage teaches us that repentance, it's the key. Repentance is the foundation for renewal. If you want to experience renewal, we have to understand what it means to repent. First, Nathan's prophecy. God uses God uses our friends. God uses our family. God uses devoted people in our lives, even our enemies, to speak truth and awaken us into the truth of who we are. We see this in 2 Samuel, chapters 11, leading into chapter 12. I'm going to give you a brief background, a summary of what happened in David's life that brought us to Psalm chapter 51. Years prior to this passage, David became God's king over Israel. He was anointed by God. He took over for an evil king and uh, as God's chosen king over Israel. However, however, over time, David was slowly starting to begin to act like a worldly king. For instance, God wanted his king to reign in modesty. Worldly kings, all the nations around Israel, hoarded their wealth. God wanted his king to lead his nation in battle, to be the one at the front of the battle. Worldly kings always stayed back. Self-preservation was their motto. God wanted his people to be, his king to be faithful. Faithful to his country, faithful to his wife. Other kings had concubines. They had harems. They had many wives. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, The chapter begins with this verse. In the spring, at a time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out into the king's men, with the king's men, and the whole Israelite army. He sent them into battle. But David remained in Jerusalem. What do you see here? What's happening? David, now starting to migrate, he's slowly becoming more and more self-preserving. He's slowly beginning to act like a worldly king. He's becoming lonelier. He's now isolating himself. He's starting to get more entitled because of his position in society. 
Spiritual decay is now starting to corrode his life, and the corrosion is now starting to take hold. It's starting to now express itself outwardly. And so in this passage, what do you see? David, in 2 Samuel 11, if you know anything about his life, one day he's out in his rooftop, and he sees Bathsheba, the wife of one of his most trusted companions, the general of his army in some ways, one of his greatest warriors, he falls for Bathsheba. And what he does is he brings her, he sends for her, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. That's the early part of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Little by little, what do you see? David is now going into a cycle of manipulation. He's becoming more and more manipulative. He's stepping over the people who serve him. He's stepping on the people who work for him, who love him. He's abusing his power to get the things that he wants. And so now Bathsheba's pregnant. What does he do? He wants to cover it up. He wants to cover over what he's done. So what does he do? He calls for Uriah to come in. He asks for this man, the wife of Bathsheba, the one who he just impregnated, he asks for Uriah to come from battle. And Uriah is this honorable man, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just take a break. Be with your wife. He's hoping that Uriah, he's trying to find ways and opportunities for Uriah to unite with his wife. But Uriah is an honorable man. He couldn't enjoy being with his wife while his men were out there dying in battle. He says, how can I do this while my men are sleeping in tents? And so after repeated failed attempts, David's hand is forced. And what does he do? He resorts to conspiracy, murder. With humility, David struck down Goliath. And now out of fear, out of pride, he's about to betray his friend, Uriah. He has him killed in battle. That's the middle part of 2 Samuel chapter 11. How could he do that? Imagine the confusion of David's people. I mean, the king was supposed to go out and lead the people in battle. He stays behind. Look at the grief of the army. They just lost one of their greatest men, one of the most faithful men. He was wholly devoted to his men. Unlike David, look at Joab, the messenger. He knows what's going on. He knows what happened. He sent for Bathsheba. Now he sends for Uriah. Uriah. Now he's putting Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle so that he would be killed. All through David's orders, he's putting the pieces together. He's disillusioned. He sees the ugliness of the politics. He knows that Uriah's death was not a coincidence coincidence it was a conspiracy and now he's starting to lose trust in his king and can you imagine i mean later on in second samuel chapter 11 he comes back and he sends word they're actually retreating they're losing the battle but let david know that uriah one of your men was killed and david's response to joab is so cold it's so callous basically what he says is it's okay people die people die in battle it's okay Think about Bathsheba, the guilt, the sadness. She just lost her husband. She knows what's happened. She knows what's happened. The guilt of the loss. This is why we know that the Bible is not just a manual on how to live a good life. I mean, look at this is David, the most influential, one of the most influential figures in the Old Testament, God's own chosen king. Clearly, we're not being taught here to be like David because then you can't avoid this passage. How can you just live like David? If you grew up learning about David and Goliath, what are you taught? 
be like David, be courageous, but you can't just take this part and then leave out this passage. Clearly, this isn't about being like David. The Bible shows us that people in the Bible, especially the leaders, the figures, the legends, they're incredibly flawed. They were terrible examples. David, one of the greatest figures in ancient history, and yet his life explodes in front of him. What's happening? He's starting to lose public trust. He's starting to lose uh, the trust of his army. He's starting to lose the trust of his palace. And he's starting to lose the trust of his own wife. Think about the court. Months later, Bathsheba, they get married. They get married very quickly. Months later, Bathsheba has a child. The court knows to do the math. They know it's not aligning right. They know something has happened. And he's getting away with it. And he's losing their trust. But verse 27 of chapter 11 ends with this verse. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, God chooses Nathan, a prophet, to approach David. And Nathan begins by telling a story, a parable. He doesn't directly approach David and accuse him because obviously David is the king back then. The king was entitled to pick up a spear and hurl it at you and kill you on the spot if he didn't like what you had to say. So what is Nathan doing? He's navigating around David's sense of uh, defensiveness, uh, his, uh, his emotional state, his self-defensive, self-preservative state. And he begins by telling a story, and he starts to navigate carefully around David's abuse of power. And as he gets to the climax of his story, this parable, David gets up, and it says, David, in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 5, he burned with anger against the man in the story, and he says to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Why was he so angry? In fact, if you, sh- if you actually read the story in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, it was a story about theft. It was actually a story about the abuse, the entitlement and abuse of power. Uh, a powerful man oppressing a weaker man. David gets up and he says, this man deserves to die. Nowhere in the Old Testament does that kind of a sin warrant capital punishment. And yet David, what, what do you see? He's starting to wake up. Through Nathan's story, he's starting to see himself plugged into the story. And he's reacting. Defensively, but he's, he's reacting. He's starting to see a sin. How do you know from this passage so far How do you know that God is calling you to repentance? When do you know that? At one point, I mean, it takes a very wise person, a certain kind of person, to be able to say, I think right now God is leading me into repentance. How do you know that? I mean, you know, you have to start looking at yourself. First, when you look at the mirror, it's very hard to see, but you're becoming critical of other people. You're starting to get defensive about yourself. You're becoming very sensitive and abrasive to people about criticism about yourself. That's very hard to see. The main way that we start to see a need for repentance, God sends close friends in our lives. God sends significant others in our lives. God sends family sometimes, even people that we can't stand in our lives, in our moment, in our situations, either expressing directly to you because friends know how to navigate you. They know you can't hide from them. They've known you. They know your true self. They navigate you and all your defense mechanisms. And they address you, and they approach you. And so look at Nathan. Nathan, he says, you are that man. It's harsh. And yet Nathan is a gracious friend. He says, but you will not die. God has forgiven you. On one hand, the harshness of the truth, and yet 
such grace, such love. We need close friends in our lives to speak truth to us. And if you have a close friend, we never respond to our Nathans the way David responded to Nathan. David could have killed him on the spot, but instead it says immediately after, I sinned against the Lord. We never respond to our Nathans when we were first addressed. The first way we respond is negatively. We turn things around on them. We, nav- we try to run away. We try to duck. David is now waking up. And we need close friends. Why do we need close friends? Because your conscience alone is not enough. Your conscience alone is not enough. Your, your ability to look into the mirror is not enough for you to be able to come to repentance. It takes a, a certain kind of person to be able to do that. Think about it. No one wakes up one day and says, you know what? I think I'm going to slaughter six million people. It doesn't happen that way. Little by little, it's the hatred. The hatred growing. Growing with opportunity. Growing with circumstance. And next thing you know, it's the murders, little by little. And it turns into a lot. And then you turn into a monster. Your conscience alone is not enough. We need people who know us well. Who know how to speak to us. And they want us to be free of the things that are destroying us. Nathan, you know, David, he bursts out in anger. And Nathan says, you are the man. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? Why did you do what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. He sounded harsh, but he was true, but he was such a good friend. Nathan was such a good friend. He was careful, and yet he was harsh. He's such a good friend. The call to repentance is always painful. That's the prophecy. But this is God's way of showing us that we're on his mind. We're always on his mind. Listen to your friends. If you want one applicative point, listen to your friends. Listen to people who love you most. They can be real annoying. They can be incredibly irritating. But they often see the things that are killing you. You know, through our Nathans, you know, we're able to see the cancer that's growing inside us that's actually destroying us. We can see it right before our eyes. And we, and we never respond well at first, but we're so grateful for our friends who can reveal these things to us. That's the prophecy. That's the meaning of this prophecy. Second, let's move to the repentance. David's repentance. You see this in the 19 verses of uh, Psalm chapter 51, and we're going to focus just on a few of these verses because it really serves as a centerpiece. Of the, if you understand these couple verses, it helps you to understand the whole of the passage. And I love this passage, I love this chapter because if you understand the components of repentance in this psalm, it'll help you to understand and appreciate the whole of the psalm itself. It's a tough word, repentance. Why do you need it? Remember James, James Cameron's uh, Titanic, the movie Titanic? Uh, the climax of the movie you have uh, a ship that's very very difficult to steer it's heading straight for an iceberg but by the time they see the iceberg it's too late The the ship cannot be steered so it actually collides into the iceberg but if you think about it the people who are at the top on the lookout and seeing the iceberg they only see the tip of that iceberg Thus the phrase, this is only the tip of the iceberg, because the truth is, what you see up at the front is barely 10% of the whole iceberg. Underneath is the big piece. So when the ship collided into that iceberg, it didn't hit the tip. It was actually colliding well before. The disaster came long before you were able to see it. And that's why, uh, you know, we need to, when we're repenting, a lot of times we're repenting of the 10% that we see, while the damage has already begun. 
and it's much deeper. It's much weightier. That's how we approach our sin. David, here, he hit the iceberg. I mean, he collided into that iceberg. And if, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Nathan says to him, a little bit more background in chapter 12, he says, you are not going to die. This is not going to result in your death. You will be forgiven. And chapter 51, Psalm 51, is a direct response to that ending of the prophecy. You will be forgiven. And David, it woke him up. I mean, he is all in. What is repentance? Repentance is turning back to God by turning away from the deep-rooted things, the deep-rooted sins that are actually controlling us. We're not, when we're repenting, we're not just repenting of the outcome and the circumstance. It's the deep-rooted sins that we're surrendering so that we can be reconciled to God. The first 12 verses of Psalm 51, you see David's brokenness, and it's a prayer for renewal. And then verses 13 to 19 is the resultant things, his response in that renewal. What do I mean by that? If you, we're going to focus on verse 4. Verse 4 is in many ways the central aspect of the first portion of Psalm 51. It's an amazing verse. Why? Because in this one verse, the first half of this verse, you see all the components of repentance. So let's look into that. You take each word. Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. If you focus and put, just keep repeating that verse but place an emphasis on each word, each time, you have the elements of repentance. Let's start with, against you, you only have I sinned. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Think about David. If David was reasonable, if David was logical, he would be praying to God, and he would say, well, let me start with Uriah. I had sinned against Uriah. I had sinned against Bathsheba. I had sinned against my family. I had sinned against my wife. I had sinned against my court. I had sinned against my palace. I had sinned against my good friends. That's not what he prays. He says, again, do you, you only? Psalm 51 is a poem. It's poetry. If David was writing a discourse or a dialogue about repentance, there would be paragraphs and paragraphs about what repentance would look like. But he's getting to the chase. This is poetry. In other words, David is singing. He sees that he's been forgiven, and he's singing. In other words, what he's saying is, why did I need Bathsheba? Why did I need to sleep in her arms? It's because I've wandered away from your arms. Why did I need to abuse my power and cover everything up? Why did I wander away and alienate myself from my army and from my palace? It's because I've wandered away from you, fellowship with you. Why did I need to abuse my people? It's because I've wandered away from your power. I stopped trusting in your power, in your work in me. Why did I have to conspire and commit murder to cover up my sin? It's because I stopped trusting in the freedom. It felt more free at that moment to commit this sin, to get away from things, than to run into your embrace and see the true forgiveness, the, the true freedom that lies in your forgiveness. That's Against you, you only have I sinned. The next part is against you, you only have I sinned. The doublet there, whenever you see two phrases, two words repeated in the Old Testament, it's, it symbolizes or represents emotional, intense emotion, intense sorrow or intense grief. Later on, you know, the sword never leaves David's life. Son after son will die. 
And as he's holding Absalom, his son, who conspired against him later on in 2 Samuel, in a war, it started a civil war with his own father, Absalom is dying in David's arms. David says, oh my son, oh my son, Absalom, oh my son, my son, Absalom. Intense emotion, grief, sorrow, because he recognizes what's happening here is a culminative event of everything that he had done as well. Here he says, against you, you only. Intense emotion. Whenever you see those phrases stuck together, intense emotion. The author is expressing the deepest part of his soul here. That's what he's saying. Repentance is poetry and singing of the deep-rooted sins. It's knowledge of your sinfulness, but it's also expressing sorrow and grief. Now, if you just know your sin and you're expressing sorrow and grief, then you're not repenting. That's what we think repentance is. It's much deeper. It's not less than that. It's a lot more than that. David here says, against you, you only have I sinned. He could have easily said, you know, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil. He's calling himself an evil person, a wicked person. We need to confess. We have knowledge. We have grief. We need to confess our sins. We need to take responsibility for what we are, what we've done. Not just the things that we've done on the outside, but the deep-rooted things that are driving us to do those things. Who we are on the inside. And in the movie Tombstone, um, it's, a, it's a movie that came out in the mid-90s. One of my favorite movies. Um, it's a Western. It's about Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and the OK Corral, the, the showdown, the shootout at the OK Corral. It, all that's a true story. And it's a great movie. Um, uh, Kurt Russell plays the role of Wyatt Earp, and he has to now meet his arch enemy. And he knows he's no match for his arch enemy. And, uh, but Doc Holliday, who's a skilled gunfighter now towards the end of his life because he's ridden with tuberculosis, but a very, very good gunfighter, he's lying in bed, and Wyatt Earp now knows that he needs to face his arch enemy who's much better than him. And he says, what drives a man like Ringo? And the words are actually printed on page one of your bulletin, the actual uh, quote. He says, a man like Ringo has got a great deep hole right in the middle of him. That's why he can never kill enough. That's why he can never steal enough. It's because he has this deep void in his heart, and it drives him to do all the things that he does. In other words, it's self-worth. We are constantly doing things to gain a a sense of worth for ourselves. It's that great deep hole. It's created by the sin in our heart. And here David is saying, I have sinned. That's me. I have done what is evil. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm I'm not going to justify who I am. I'm not going to sit there and say, you know, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have taken a bath out there naked for all the world to see. He's not self-justifying. He's not self-preserving. He's letting all these things go. And he's saying, Lord, I deserve to die. I've sinned. I am evil. He's looking out and he sees who he is. There's no ifs. There's no ands. There's no buts. There's no justification, no rationalization. He's confessing, you know, he says, I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's all a part of the confession. Think about it. In your sight, he sinned in the eyes of Uriah. He sinned in the eyes of Joab. Joab has probably lost complete trust and faith in his king. 
He sinned in the eyes of Bathsheba in his palace. How dare can he, he say, I've done what is evil in your sight? What he's saying here, you know, if he had confessed and said, you know, I've sinned and done what is evil in Uriah's eyes, he'd be doing that because he's afraid of the punishment. If he says, you know, Lord, I've sinned and done what is evil in the eyes of the Ten Commandments, then he'd be, he'd be doing this out of fear of God's punishment. He said, you know, Lord, I, I've sinned and done what is evil in the eyes of my country. He'd be doing this in fear of losing his office. He says, I've done what is evil in your sight. I have to go even deeper than that. Yeah, I'm afraid of all those things, but I have to go even deeper. And when you realize that the person who loves you the most is the person that you hurt the most, that's going to lead you to wake up. That's going to lead you to experience grief. That's going to bring you towards confession. And in verses 11 to, 11, 11 to 12, you know, he's, he's not looking for a way out. Let me read verses 11 to 12. He says, don't cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David is not saying, Lord, please don't take away my kingship. He's saying, right now, I need access. I need access to you. I need to come back to you. Scholars agree from this point on, David never again abuses his power for selfish gain. Liberal scholars, conservative scholars, they say never again do you see any recorded history of David abusing his power ever again. Lastly, the component of, uh, the last component of repentance is our response. Verses 13 to 19, I'm just going to go quickly through this. If you look at verses 13 to 19 of Psalm 51, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners are going to turn back to you. Verse 14, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, my mouth will declare your praise. And then he talks about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. In other words, David is saying, in your forgiveness, I will become a teacher again. My teaching will be restored. In your forgiveness, I will worship again. I will be able to sing and declare your praise. My worship will be restored. In your presence again, when I get access, my leadership, my kingship will be restored. The walls of Jerusalem will be built up again. I will become a leader again. I will become a priest again. I will become a king again. That's David. In your forgiveness, when I get access, I will be restored he has amazing confidence. He doesn't say, oh, it might happen, it might not. He says, this will happen because I'm trusting in your calling, what you've called me to be. The change came about. His change, his response, it came about because he was restored. He wasn't restored because he made the changes. The way you view change and restoration, whichever one you place first, will determine how you live your life. You will either live out of being restored and then you will make change in response out of a deep love because you found access or you're going to try to constantly gain access by making change and say, see, Lord, look what I'm doing. Look what I'm doing. I deserve to be in your presence again. Now, we don't blatantly say that in our prayers, but it shows in our disappointments. It shows in our bitterness. It shows in our pride. David puts all that aside. He says, I know I've been forgiven. And so I will be restored. I will do all these things again. 
Sin is always trying to replace your heart, the worship of God with other things, other Bathshebas in our lives. But the gospel, true repentance begins when your heart returns. It says, I will now replace those things again with what is true, what is more beautiful than, than Bathsheba, what is more wealthier than my kingdom. Last point, God's forgiveness. How are we forgiven? We realize David's been forgiven. How are we forgiven? David prays in verse 12, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. In other words, he doesn't pray to God, Lord, fix everything up, please. In fact, things don't get fixed up. You know, he doesn't pray, Lord, get me out of this mess. Get me out of my debt. Things actually don't shape up much in David's life. The sword never leaves, I mentioned earlier. Son after son will die. But he knows he's forgiven. He knows he's been forgiven. That's the news he heard from Nathan. And that's, that's the truth. It wasn't so much that God took away the consequences. It was the truth of knowing that he has ultimate access to God. Now his life is going to be in suffering, but the fact that he is in ultimate, his ultimate access, that news, that's what led to the psalm. That's what led to the poetry. And in Psalm chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, he, you know, David says, I've sinned against the Lord. The word Lord there, the, the Hebrew word for Lord there is Yahweh. It's a very, very particular word. We know it to be a very common word for God's name, but it's a name that was only reserved for a very specific group of people that God chose to love beyond all the other people in the world. God said, you know, everybody else refers to God as Elohim or or, uh, you know, which is basically a general word for God. You know, Adonai, Elohim. But God says, but you, my people, will call me Yahweh. It is a very personal word. It's a, it's a word reserved only for people who consider themselves God's children, whom God promised all of his blessing. And so David knew that. And that's what led to the, the because of the intimate relationship that he had with God, because of the restoration that he was promised through Nathan, he knew he could still address him as his Lord. How did he know that? Uriah lived the life that David was supposed to live, but then paid the price that David was supposed to pay. Uriah lived the life that David was supposed to live and then died the death that David was supposed to die. It was in Uriah's cost the death of one who did not deserve to die that satisfied David's debt. And as a result, David knew that he could, that's, in fact, because of Uriah, because of the betrayal of Uriah and then the death of Uriah, it's, that's what actually led to a cascade of events that ultimately woke David up and brought him back to the Lord. It was all at Uriah's cost. And so in Psalm 51, chapter, verse 1, he says, he says, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. And the Greek, the, the Hebrew word for unfailing love there, it's a very, again, a very particular phrase. It's the word keseth. Keseth was only a love, it's a word that represents a love that only God can have for his people because our love is failing. It's an everlasting, unfailing, undying, eternal love that one person can have for another. Unconditional reserved only for us, God's people. 
We cannot have Kesef love right now because of our sin. But God, David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And that's what changed him. That's what transformed him. David received forgiveness through Nathan. We have an even greater word. We have an even greater word of Kesef. What is the power for our repentance? What allows us in our guilt, in our fear, to be able to run to the Father and say, this is who I am. Please forgive me. Bathsheba eventually gives birth. Son after son will die, but Bathsheba eventually gives birth to Solomon. And through Solomon, you see a line of kings that come and go until centuries later, Jesus Christ is born through the line of Bathsheba and the line of Solomon. Jesus, the greater Solomon. Jesus, the, gr- the greater David. Jesus, the greater Uriah, who lived a perfect life. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. Uriah lived the life that David was supposed to live. He, Jesus Christ lived the life that we were supposed to live, and then what did he do? He died the death that we were supposed to die. Second, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says... God made him who had no sin to become sin. In other words, David, he cries out and he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil. Jesus on the cross says, I am evil. I have become evil for our sakes. On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David says, I will have access I will be pardoned. I have your unfailing love. Jesus on the cross says, I have been forsaken. I have lost access. David, who was a man after God's own heart. But then the cross points to Jesus, who not only was a man after God's own heart, he was God's heart. And yet, he says, I have been separated. I have been forsaken. We are called to look to Jesus. He did not stay back in his palace, but he literally emptied himself of all of his glory, came to the front line, left his glory, left his palace, surrendered everything he had and everything he was so that we could have glory. He gave up access so that we could have access. He gave up his sonship so that we could be sons. That's why we can ask the Lord to restore our joy. The greater and the deeper you plant that truth into your heart, that's what it means to be gospel-centered. 